What's up, listeners? This is Jeff Staple. I just want to take a moment here and thank you all for listening to the business of hype. It started as a small, simple idea and took off immediately. And it honestly wouldn't have happened without you. Whether it's subscribing to the show, tuning in every week, tweeting us your favorite quotes, Instagramming us, or just telling your friends about us, every little bit helps. So tell your coworker, tell your boss, tell your intern, tell your deli guy, share the knowledge. If there's one thing I learned from this, it's that what you give out comes back tenfold. So our first season was amazing, and I want to personally thank all the incredible guests who've shared their time and stories with us. Hiroshi, Sarah, Aaron, Upscale, Mike Cherman, Melody, Yoon, James, Levi, thank you. If you missed any of these, I highly recommend you go check them out. And if you've listened to all of them, listen to them again. I guarantee you'll find something new the second time around. So this episode marks the final one of the season. We're going to take a little break from here and be back in a few weeks with brand new episodes. And with that, let's get into this week's show. I, was, I guess I was always a, a bad influence. Entrepreneur, not necessarily in the, in the, the best way. Did you uh, counterfeit other things? Like, were you making fake IDs and stuff? Yeah, no, I ne- uh, <laughs> no, I got a fake ID at a young age, but I wasn't making them. Um, mm-hmm. What else was like counterfeiting? That was it. But that was like a, my creative way in, just into being creative. Yeah, because you also learn like graphic design and stuff and all of that, right? You're like yeah, you, scanning, it, you learn about resolution, you yep. learn about like color matching. It's like the best lesson. I guess that's kind of <laughs> like, you know, recreating a Nike or what I'm doing now. My, my focus is to, one, make a higher quality shoe, but make it look exactly like a Nike. Yeah. So... I literally wrote in my notebook like you've been a bootlegger for life basically like yeah. you've been like a counterfeiter since like 11 years old. I man, I'm glad you're bringing these points out. From Hype Beast Radio, I'm Jeff Staple and this is the Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators and the realities behind the dreams they've built. I'm proud to say this is the first doctor we've had on the show. Well, okay, he's not a real doctor, but he does go by the title of surgeon. Dominic Shambroni is the shoe surgeon, and he takes a scalpel and stitches to the skin of shoes and does absolutely amazing things with them. It's a balance of art and science, the delicate hand mixed with brute force. And the thing that fascinates me most about the industry of sneaker customizers is the business model itself, because you not only need to be an amazing creative mind, but you also need to be a craftsman. You're the factory. You're the trend forecaster, you're the marketer, and you're the salesman. Customizers said to the sneaker brands, if you can't join them, beat them. And now the sneaker brands are saying to them, if you can't beat them, join them. But you could probably count on two hands the customizers out there that are really moving the needle. And Dominic is definitely at the top of the game. So I got a chance to sit down in his massive street-level parking garage in downtown LA. You'll hear cars rumbling by during the interview, so you get a sense of just how street level his operations are. Who better to speak to about this entire industry than the infamous shoe surgeon? So um, for the record and for those who don't know, please introduce yourself, who you are, what you do. My name is Dominic Chambroni. I go by the shoe surgeon. Uh, I make, I guess, custom sneakers. Uh, I would say I'm a shoemaker, a designer, an artist, just a craftsman. I mean, I think I wear many hats. 
entrepreneur. <laughs> Obviously, sneakers are a big part of what it is that you do, if not the main part. Um, take us back to the beginning. Were you uh, like a sneakerhead growing up? Yeah, when I started, when I got into sneakers was high school. And my, I had an older cousin who had the original 1985 Jordans Chicago's. And she let me wear those to my, fresh, my first day of freshman year of high school. And I didn't know what they were. You know, I had an older brother who wore Jordans and um, he was more of a jock. You know, and I was going into high school, I was shy and quiet. Um, but I wore those original Jordans to the first day of school and I got props from the seniors, every, all the cool kids. And I didn't know why, I, I mean, I guess I understood why after, but and that was like my introduction into sneakers and it was being able to express yourself by not even saying anything just by wearing sneakers yeah and where was this this was in uh, northern california so santa rosa california which is about a hour north of san francisco were other kids in the school like into sneakers too like they were rocking different shoes already at the time so this was 2000 this was 2002, no, 2000, 2000, 2001. Um, and it was mostly Jordans. Like, I was wearing the original Jordans, and then, you know, people had the retros, and I just started understanding, like, these Jordans were, like, the, was, was cool. All right, when did, um, so you're in, so the Jordan affects you, right? You get the Jordan effect, so to speak. Yeah. And then what, you just start copying lots of shoes? So I got the Jordan effect, and then in, I got to I started buying Jordans early. So it was for me, it was always about that exclusive feel, and it wasn't just about having the Jordans, but like stunting early. So I would we knew met some people who would backdoor some Jordans weeks early. I would put them on, wear them into a Foot Locker early, and those guys would flip. So it was a way to like make myself feel good without saying anything, just be like this, that nod, like interesting. And then, so the, it wasn't just about owning the shoe, but it was about the time in which you owned the shoe, yeah, and the exclusivity of it, in, in a sense, yeah. And you mentioned that you were a shy person by nature, so it wasn't about you like being loud and like obnoxious, but you just walk in and own a room, yeah, just by what's on your feet. Yeah, it was a way to get into a conversation with someone without being like, "Hey, look at me," even though it was, yeah, but know, without saying it, without saying right. it, right? Interesting. So. This is my assumption, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but what you do now is like an ultra extension of that. Like, it's like the ultimate, even Nike is not making these things. Like, you're the only one making it, and if anyone wants it, they got to come see you. Is it, is it stemmed from that? I haven't really thought of it, because I've been so wrapped up in, like, the, tomorrow that that's, I think, exactly it. And now I have that exclusive product which I'll tell you more about how it turned into me making shoes for myself, and then it was more about making shoes for other people. Yeah. So let's go back to like 2000, early 2000s. Sneaker culture is already like a bubbling thing, and I would say that sneaker painters was already a thing too, right? Like pe kids were like yep. customizing shoes usually just by painting on them. Did you start doing that? Did you start <laughs> Yeah, that that's how I started. So after I wore the Jordans early and then all of my friends in high school started wearing Jordans so it was literally like hey what shoes are you wearing today I'm like I'm gonna wear those ones mm -hmm. everyone had the same shoes so I was like this just doesn't make sense that doesn't have that feeling anymore right 
and you can only buy so many Jordans early and do the same thing. So one day I picked up an airbrush in high school and this was, this was before that I knew anything about painting shoes or anything. I just was more of an artsy kid and I was like, Hey, I have, a, I'm going to, you know, we had like Michael's, it was easy to get to like a craft store. So yeah. I went to a Michael's, grabbed an airbrush and I was like, Hey, I just want to airbrush these, try them out. Airbrushed a pair of all white Air Force One mids and a camouflage and went to school the next day and the feeling or the the reaction that I got from everyone was even more crazy and I was like whoa I I did this so it made me feel even better and I was like wow so that's that was my introduction into painting or making custom shoes it wasn't was the uh was the notion that I'm gonna like flip these and sell them it was never about that no okay it was it was just about having the one of one that no one else had yeah so it started more of just like I want to have cool shit and then I mean as soon as I did that they're like hey can you do mine and that happened yeah right away they're like hey can you paint mine and okay. I was just like you know it was like a catch-22 because it was like I wanted to have that exclusive shoe for myself but it was like I also became I, I liked pleasing others and giving them something that they felt special about so you started doing it yeah. And were you charging kids? No, I, I wasn't for the longest time. Wow. Like, I, I've come from a side where I'm crafty, artistic, and it was never, it wasn't about charging, and it, not till recently, eight years ago. Damn, it's not recent anymore. <laughs> eight years ago, I like finally hit this hump, and it was like, it was hard for me to charge people for something because I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to f- feel about taking someone's money, even though I was creating and spending my sweat and life doing. So I had to overcome that. But it was never in the beginning. wasn't about charging. It, I was I was uh, doing other things in high school to make money. Uh, with that, I guess, what is the aren't the the best way to make money? <laughs> like, I was counterfeiting tickets and counterfeiting like stuff for school so I can I was like the guy that would make counterfeit stuff and sell we, we would sell so our school had a lot of people but you were limited to how many graduation tickets a family got mm-hmm. so we just decided to make our own you counterfeited graduation tickets yeah and for you can sell those for $15 a piece and I mean we made a thousand a couple thousand dollars in a few months and for high school that's good good money <laughs> but you did it every you did it every year or I just did it your the, No, I did year? it the year before me, then I did it my year, then we did it the next year cuz I have younger brothers, and then I did it fi- the last year, my youngest brother was like, "Hey, I want to do it too." And I was like, "All right, well, we're going to take a cut." He got caught, he couldn't walk, and then that was the end of <laughs> that was the end of counterfeiting tickets. But <laughs> To go back, even before even the counterfeiting and making custom shoes, I was always creative in the way where I was counterfeiting um, tickets. You know, like when you go to like uh, Scandia, what's, what's another word? You know what a Scandia is? No. You know, like a fun center where you can like play games and get, win tickets? Yeah, like Chuck E. Cheese. There you go. Chuck E. Cheese. So at the time, <clears throat> my grandma worked for HP. She sent us this this is when computers were just like really getting going and then we she sent us this keyboard that had a scanner insert in it so i like found a way how can i use that and like create stuff so 
we won a bunch of tickets. So we, at the time, also, it wasn't just about tickets. You can then go to these Chuck E. Cheese's and put the tickets through a machine, and then it printed out a receipt. Mm-hmm. So my dad worked at Pier 39, and we won a bunch of tickets um, at, at the Pier 39 in San Francisco. And we had three different big tickets with, like, 3,000, 2,000, 1,500. And then I would scan. This is, like, age... T- 12 this is a very young age mm-hmm. and i would scan those copy those and cut them out so then we had multiples of those so then we would go to the counter and be like hey we want to get that xbox so that was like the creative way that wasn't that was my other and that worked it worked multiple times until i got greedy and i wanted like i guess i wanted the, the most expensive thing there and i would have had to put like two of my biggest tickets together so I went to some kids. I was like, yo, we'll give you some extra ones of these if you can go try to get this for us. And my brothers that were with me at the time, because we spent a lot of time on the pier, were even younger than me, like four years younger than me. So they you know, they, don't, they knew what I was doing, but they didn't. So I had some random kids go do it. And they got caught. They, security said, who'd you get them from? I was already out, like booked. <laughs> but my brothers, of course, like they got my brothers and brought him to my dad's office because he was like a vice president of Pure 39 Restaurants. And I was, I knew oh, when man. I got back I was going to be fucked. My, Did yeah. your dad get in trouble? No, uh, he didn't get in trouble. I mean, he let me. He gave it to you. He gave it to me for <laughs> sure. You know, because I'm the older brother. I shouldn't be setting those. I, was, I guess I was always a, a bad influence. Entrepreneur, not necessarily in the in the the best way did you uh counterfeit other things like were you making fake ids and stuff yeah, no i never, uh <laughs> no i got a fake id at a young age but i wasn't making um what else was like counterfeiting that was it but that was like a my creative way in, in just into being creative yeah because you also learn like graphic design and stuff and all of that right you're like yeah you scanning it, you learn about resolution you yeah. learn about like color matching it's like the best lesson. I guess that's kind of like, <laughs> you know, recreating a Nike or what I'm doing now. My my focus is to, one, make a higher quality shoe, but make it look exactly like a Nike. Yeah. So. <laughs> I literally wrote in my notebook, like, you've been a bootlegger for life, basically. Oh, like, you've been like a counterfeiter since like 11 years old. I Man, I'm glad you're bringing these points out. Even though Dominic took his creative pursuits into some dodgy areas... His story is not uncommon amongst creatives that I know. Many start out young being driven by things they're really passionate about. I remember for me, it was comic books. I'd start out tracing my favorite characters out of tracing paper, you know, just literally copying them. Then I evolved to making new characters on my own. But copying really teaches you a lot about the technique. And if you're applying that to something you really love, I guarantee you, you'll learn it much quicker. Dominic's hustle from bootlegging early on might be due to the environment he was raised in, but I'd like to think it's something in his DNA that would eventually morph into the profession that he's most known for today. All right, so um, you, you were airbrushing shoes, right? Oh, you know what I wanted to ask you? Um, you said like you only started charging people for shoes like in yeah, the last fairly, eight years, yeah. right? But you, take, you go back to like the year 2010, 2009, like there was already sabotage methamphibian are you familiar with these people yeah yeah yeah. people selling painted shoes for that did you see this back then and were you like i'm not gonna do that for some reason no so i think i really wanted to 
perfect the craft. I really mm. wanted to like be able to be proud of a product and sell something that would last forever. So that's, I think, one thing. But 2004, I graduated high school, barely graduated, uh, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, because with family. And um, I went into like a Borders, you know, a bookstore. Yeah. And I grabbed a Sneaker Freaker book. Like it was like, it was the first Sneaker Freaker book, the big one. So it had like chapter one through seven or something. Oh, it's like a compilation book. Yeah, and I was like, I got that. And I saw Sabotage's stuff. Um, There was so many different like painted, like art, like custom shoes in the back. I have the book somewhere, but so many custom shoes. And I was like, wow, this is cool. I don't want to just paint. I want to. I want to do more. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, in Charlotte, North Carolina, the South, um, there was already like an airbrush artist in a mall painting Air Force Ones. Oh and wow! We, we didn't have that in in California. <laughs> like people would maybe. I, I don't. Even, they were hand painting Air Force Ones here uh, up up north, but it was. The South you know, is really like the capital of do-it-yourself yeah. customization, like on everything. Denim jackets, jeans, like everything, you know? Yeah, and then we, we just didn't have that culture, and we didn't have, like, also the people that are willing to pay for something like mm-hmm. that. And I m- ran into a, a guy that, a painter guy that painted the Super Bowl cleats for the Charlotte, uh, Carolina Panthers, yeah. sorry, um, in 2004. So we like made a connection and then I was reading that book and I was just like diving into it more, mm-hmm. just like seeing what else was out there in the world. And this was before internet was still slow. Like it wasn't that easy to search the web. Yeah. Um, like I was driving around to all of the malls in Charlotte and they had a lot of malls and you had the com- polar opposites. Yeah. You had the most expensive like high end mall. And then you had the, a mall that had like bootleg Nikes and bootleg uh, bait. What were you looking for in those malls? Inspiration. Uh-huh. I was just, I, it, for me, I th- that's how I got into it. I, was, I loved going to the malls. Not anymore. But it's like I loved going to the malls and just getting this, this, this energy. And that's, you know, just seeing what was going on in the malls because that's where people were hanging out at the time. And just yeah. seeing like the, man, what was that store? It's on the East Coast. You know, they carry like Ed Hardy jeans. The buckle? <laughs> no, not buckle. There's some <laughs> other one. That, uh, the downtown. Downtown locker room. Yeah. Yeah. I went that, that. I don't know. I never could spend money there, but it was just like it inspired me. Just I mean, it was a it was a new type of fashion, but yeah. Uh, and then when did you decide like I'm going to start deconstructing and bringing a knife to the shoe so when i was in charlotte i started painting and then i started gluing stuff on top and you know um i wasn't happy with it so then i went to this i went so hold on you're like buying shoes with your own money yeah and then experimenting and not liking what you're doing like you're basically fucking up on these samples essentially i spent a lot of money on messing up like people spend money on school yeah i spent probably hundreds of thousands on fuck-ups. Wow. Did you go to college? No. Okay. So your college tuition was spent on Yeah. I shoes. mean, I think it's probably the same. <laughs> like, people don't understand, like, like, how do I learn what you learn? And that's why I start teaching. But 
I spent a lot of money. Yeah. What were you doing for income at the time? Uh, North Carolina. Uh, what was I doing? I was working for my uncle, like doing yard work. I was, I got into partying and drinking and then doing nothing, being lazy. But then, you know, that's on that, on my time when my out time, I was just driving around trying to find like the, the next thing. And then I got a job at a uh, Harris Teeter. You familiar with Harris Teeter? No. It's like a Safeway or Vons or. Okay. Um, so that was like my first job, one of my first jobs and doing that. Not a whole lot of money, I would assume making money at Harris Tweeters. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, no. I couldn't even tell you how much it was at the time, but <laughs> it was just uh, something to make some money and pass some time away. Uh-huh. Um, I was, whenever I did get a job, I would always give it 100% and I would, I would move up in the, you know, whatever it was, like from bagger to the next, I don't know, level to... Uh, clerk mm-hmm. but then I got a job at no fear in Charlotte uh-huh because uh, I used to have this long uh, like wavy hair looked like a surfer and I was like you know a white boy in North Carolina I had a SoCal tattoo at the time and I was like going up an escalator at a mall because I spent a lot of time at the mall and there's this no fear store mm-hmm. which if it was in California, I would have hated it. But since it was over there, it was different. I, yeah, yeah, it was different. And they had like these SoCal T-shirts. Anyways, this guy, the guy, the manager of the store, saw me going up the escalator with the SoCal tattoo because I always like this, you know. And he's like, "Hey, I want you to, yo, you have the look. Like, come assistant, be my assistant manager." I was like, "Okay." So then I got a job in the mall, which was cool for me at the time because then I started bringing my shoes in there that I was customizing and just like displaying them. In the No Fear store. Yeah. That's it was like custom nice. Air Force Ones in the No Fear store. So. Wow. How much were you selling them for? 100 maybe $120. But you'd have to buy the shoe for. Like, yeah, eight? so you, what'd you make? Like 20 bucks, 40 bucks? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, not even, because, I mean, you do your labor at that, but that was, that was the introduction, I think. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long journey. Ego. It'll get in your way if you let it. Trust me. Actually, trust Dominic. You can always find someone who'll tell you something that you're doing isn't cool. Dominic was working at a no-fear store in the mall. I don't think he needed to ask many people to hear negative feedback. But that didn't concern him. It was about the opportunity and the visibility. And I think Dominic instinctively knew it. When I interviewed him, we were sitting in his massive factory in downtown LA, surrounded by insane kicks, expensive equipment, beautiful furniture, a sick ride, his lovely wife, and almost half a million Instagram followers. You think he had this in mind when he filled out that job application at the mall? If his prerogative was to get all of this on his first try, he would have definitely failed. He knew this wasn't the finish line. It was like me bussing tables at a Chinese restaurant or Drake on Degrassi High. You, as an entrepreneur, won't be eternally tied to your humble beginnings. You aren't defined by those things unless you let it happen. No fear was just a stepping stone and a lesson learned. You write your story, nobody else. Were you um, 
starting to gain an audience, like a fan base out of out of the No Fear store in the mall. Not necessarily, not necessarily from the No Fear store in the mall, but I became good at networking and you know the other side of business and just talking and communicating with people. Uh, so I did have. I've already done, I did a lot of like painted custom sneakers. So I had a little portfolio and, you know, I would go around all the malls and meet all the managers of stores and start. So definitely started getting some type of fan base. Yeah. But this is pre any sort of like Instagram type thing. Like you didn't have a following digitally, right? Nope. nope. We had Nike <laughs> talk, but I wasn't on the, I wasn't on it that hard. I was just like just getting to understand it and then looking at other customizers at the time and what they were doing and yeah but your question was when did I start taking the shoe apart so in North Carolina Charlotte I went into a store which was a uh, the niche market so his store was unlike any store I've ever seen that's you know they were selling Stussy when it was at the early early ages mm -hmm. it was like uh, the mix between you know it wasn't this it was the more higher end streetwear yeah you know i came from von dutch jeans to <laughs> to trucker hats to then learning more about like the a little bit nicer kind of dressing um and i went to the store and i said hey i make custom shoes showed him stuff he's like can you know if you give me something uh, I'll do something for you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, yeah, you're going to put some rhinestones on Air Force Ones or do something like that. I was like, no, 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 give me any shoe. He gave me a Vans Chukka size 7 all white because he was never going to sell that size. But he gave it to me. And I was like, all right. Then he gave me some of his assets for the logos. And I came up with like two, a few different designs, uh, messed with his logo. And then I... Randomly came across a Tandy leather, which was my introduction to leather that I didn't know existed. And I had some st stuff lasered. Leather, I had some leather lasered with their logos and stuff. Cut it out. Then I brought it to a shoe repair shop and I said, hey, can you stitch this on? Not thinking too much. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah. So and a few days later, I got it back and it was, I was just kind of blown away that they were able to sew on top of a shoe with leather. Brought those shoes back to the store, and the guy was pretty blown away. They're like, "I've never seen this." You know, it's a Tandy leather Vans. <laughs> yeah, a lasered Tandy leather Vans. Yeah, and yeah, because I oh, mean, that that sneaker freaker book had the early days of Chris Mays. Yeah, and all the lasering stuff. So I was so inspired about lasering, and I was—I mean, it was like manifesting it as it happened. Like I was. You know, that Sneaker Freaker book is like, I think, one big point in my life that really got me into it, seeing all the sabotage, methamphibian. Like, I looked up to those guys so much, and I'd never felt like a painter artist. Mm -hmm. I was like, I needed to, to set myself apart. I needed to figure something else out. Did you have any sort of, like, sewing background at all at that point? My, my grandma, for my senior gift, bought me a home sewing machine. So in high school, I was doing screen printing. A little bit I hated it but then I was like cutting things out of a shirt and inlaying them mm -hmm. with sewing myself so I guess that was my introduction to sewing okay you knew how to use thread needle scissors and you know like 
Exacto blades. And a sewing machine. Yeah, yeah. It was always crafty, I guess. Right. And then, okay, so where does it go from there? You're selling the shoes out of No Fear. You you made the shoe for the niche. What's it called? The niche. niche the, the niche. The niche market. The niche market. And then how does it go to the next plateau? I moved back to Northern California, and then I started searching out shoe repair because that was my last uh, encounter with custom shoe yeah. that we did ourselves even though I had the shoe repair shop do it and then I started reaching out to all the I just walk into a shoe repair shop and say hey you know I want to learn more about these machinery I was so inspired after coming back and the first guy kind of was just like fuck you get out of here mm-hmm. he's like an older guy and she, I mean I'm sure you know shoe repair is a dying craft and it's not the best like they're around chemicals they're fixing shoes for five dollars like it's not the the best industry i mean don't get me wrong some of them make a lot of money but it's it's a rough job it's a lot of labor yeah it's, it's pretty intense so i got turned down by a few of those they're disinterested and then finally went to the third guy and i was like hey i want to learn you know i want to learn how to sew sew shoes i want to learn how to make sneakers and he was willing to at least tell me like oh this machine does this this does that he Help me find the machine that would sew on top of the shoe. And then I was like, hey, I want to learn from you. And he was kind of like, well, I don't really know you. You can be a liability, you know, especially being in California. Everyone sues everyone. And it kind of bummed me out. Um, he helped me get the machine. But then literally, like, the next day I was watching from the other side of the counter. And just I was so fascinated by the machines in, like, a shoe repair shop and already got my feet wet into leather that I was I just knew there was something more that I wasn't learning. Then I finally he saw me and saw how serious I was and was like, okay, well, you can come watch. Were you just like the annoying kid that just kept coming every day <laughs> and looking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he knew I was serious and he like, I mean, I built a relationship with him. He was an, an older Italian gentleman and, you know, I was just like the, the kid who wanted to learn. And, um, and that was like my first experience with someone giving me a chance because... You know, many people cursed me away. Mm-hmm. It's always fascinating to hear stories about how certain people handle rejection. Do not minimize for one second what happened here. Dominic sought out assistance and mentorship repeated times and was rejected repeated times. Here's a newsflash. He could have given up. And that would have been the most normal human thing for him to do. His homie might have even said, bro, you're trying to get into a dying industry with a bunch of old geezers who won't give you the time of day. Maybe it's time to move on. And let me tell you, I hear that story of someone giving up every damn day. In fact, it's the typical story. Dominic's story is anything but typical. When I first started Staple in 97, my idol and hero, Babito Garcia, had a small boutique in the East Village called Babito's Footwork. The store was no bigger than the recording studio that I'm sitting in right now. But for whatever reason, it was my main goal to have Staple in that shop. So I scheduled an appointment to see him to show him the Staple line, and he showed up three hours late. I just sat in the store for three hours, and just to paint the picture even more, I think I sat on a milk crate the entire time. When he finally came in, he flat out rejected the entire line in 10 minutes, in front of the entire staff said he wasn't feeling it. I literally walked out in tears from that experience. But you best believe I'd eventually get Staple into that store 
and it was that small lesson that would fuel Staple for the next 20 years to come. But this was shoe repair, so there was still so much I needed to learn, and I was, you know, I got that first sewing machine that was literally, it's just sewing on top of a shoe, which isn't what I do now. Yeah. And, you know, that's like what they were doing back in New York, sewing, sewing the Gucci checks on with the patching machine, um, which I learned so much just doing that in itself. Then I started putting, like, boot soles on vans and sneakers with his help. I learned how to take soles off Red Wings and resole Red Wings, which got me really uh, into boots. Um, Were you working for him? Not getting paid. What was I doing for money? I don't even know if I can talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so needless to say, you were doing things for money that you can't talk about on the air. You won't even answer the question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah? Yep. (laughs) Okay. I'm trying to figure out how to answer that one. Yeah, no. I was, I mean, I was working, well, as soon as I moved back to California, I was working at a gym, and then I started selling supplements, workout supplements that I don't know how I got. Um, so I was always just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you go away for doing this ever? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. That's... Uh, oh, well, no one does. Oh, okay. That's, Do you... that's, well, people know, but not okay. the close ones. I was trying to figure out if I want that to to get out. You'd be my second interviewee. Oh, no, third interviewee that went to jail. <laughs> no, no, let's keep it. Okay. <laughs> so you were getting, you were just sort of making money in like illicit ways, but also have this, you have this passion at the same time. Yeah, I had the, the passion, so I was focusing on that. And I got into partying, started to help friends, throwing parties, um, screen printing t-shirts. And then I was always at the shoe repair shop, like bringing my own shoes and just trial and error. I had the machine that I, that my dad actually bought for me at the time as an investment. It was like a $3,500 sewing machine, but he made me write out a business plan and all these things that I couldn't even grasp. The business plan looked great, except for like the numbers part, because I was always bad at the numbers. Yeah. But um, so I was also following my passion and just creating and that was when Instagram started Mm -hmm. Uh, you'll see like my earliest photo is like uh, Sperry top slider with like a leather bottom sole okay that you made at this this dude's shoe repair shop yep and then I was also doing like stuff for my I had friends that were DJs in Vegas so then I started like sewing swooshes on top of nikes with gator but then i was like recovering every panel with material and making it look pretty good like it was a fully reconstructed shoe but i knew still that wasn't that wasn't the the quality wasn't what i wanted it Mm -hmm. um were you branding these yet yeah that's when yeah we i was putting my my skull logo on there okay and you were you named yourself the shoe surgeon yeah the shoe surgeon named came the shoe surgeon name came when i was in charlotte we being in the east coast is so much different than california because you have just california to drive through being on the east coast you can go through different um states fairly quick so one day i was like hey let's go up to new york city we drove up to new york city 
we randomly went to a vape store. Pharrell was outside, who was like my idol at the time for music style, fat, you know, fashion. Um, and I got, we got so inspired because you know I never was in Fit Bend in New York City that <clears throat> finally I was like, hey, you need to figure out like your name. And it was it was me, my brother, and a friend at the time, and we were in the you know uh, one hundred no. How big are the hotel rooms in New York and Times Square? Like a shoebox. Yeah, for three three hundred <laughs> bucks a night, which yeah. is cheap, but expensive at the time. Uh, and we were writing stuff down, and it was like, well, what do you do with shoes? Like, what do you want to be known? And it came out. I just we just wrote down, you know, we're kind of like surgeons, so it originally became shoe surgeons, with a money sign, <laughs> of course, and a Z at the end. Uh, <laughs> Since then, then we moved back, and then you know I wasn't really fr- uh, lost touch with my friend, and then it became the shoe surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, and then I started branding the shoes, the shoe surgeon. Uh, made I started just gifting celebrities or DJs custom sneakers that still the quality wasn't there. Um, uh, what was his name? Jermaine Dupree, Dirt Nasty, like just random gifting Vegas. That's yeah, it. yeah. Just because you had these connections through the party industry. Yeah, right. Yeah, just and the gym supplement industry. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what would help. air quote gym supplement. <laughs> that's what would help me uh, buy the, sh- the shoes that I would be giving away. I mean, right. Yeah. So your business plan was sell supplements, buy shoes, give them away for free after you spend hours sewing on them yeah at the italian guy's shoe repair shop yeah or having him help me with a lot of it but i did the <laughs> majority of the sewing but yeah that was that was it and it still wasn't at the time it was just like you know i was 21 thinking like yeah i'm gonna be a billionaire <laughs> just giving away shoes <laughs> wait how how were you thinking that i don't know i had a big dream that I had a big dream that I didn't understand, I guess. Hmm. And it just came to to life. But I had a lot of hardships that I had to go through to understand what reality really was and what I really needed to do to, to make it a business. Mm-hmm. Throughout the conversations that define season one of Business of Hype, we heard a lot about the pros and cons of blind ignorance. I've been amazed at the unconventional path of folks like Dominic. I mean, how did that business model make any sense? Do some illegal side hustle, buy shoes with the money, customize shoes with your own money and time, then give the shoes away for free. It's crazy. Any bank or business investor would have laughed in his face. But Dominic said it best. He said, I knew I would become a billionaire doing this. It kind of reminds me of what Steve Jobs once told a graduating class at Stanford. Stay hungry, stay foolish. So what was the first step into making it like what we're sitting in today? I mean, a big part of where I'm at today is because of Instagram. You know, it just just so happened to become a thing at the same time when custom sneakers became even more um okay Mm -hmm. because you know for a long time people would consider them fake or they would consider them there was a time where like customizers sort of were seen as like a second rate yeah part of the culture especially jordan brand 
Like the company saw it that way, you mean? No, sorry. Anyone that was really into Jordans. Oh, I see. Jordan head people. Jordan head. Air Force One and like North Carolina type, like the East Coast, it was different. But yeah. like people, Jordan heads, like mm-hmm. anything custom was like, no. Mm-hmm. Instagram, you know, I made, it was still me. Like then it was me and, you know, my parents' garage just like sewing on top of shoes, taking vans apart, um, sewing on top of them to like making them look actually like a new silhouette because I was inspired by I got into design and f- more fashion through black scale and Android home and then I was more into like making unique things rather than just recrafting or putting material on a Vans or material on a Nike mm-hmm. like I wanted to get more into design and fashion yeah I was going that route I made some custom sneakers for H Lorenzo it's like custom vans, but you wouldn't know they're vans. Right. And I mean, we sold them, uh, not for very much. I think they sold them for like seven hundred and fifty. I think I made two hundred fifty a pair. But Will I am went in there, bought them, and this was very. This was still very early stages in not making that perfect sneaker. I was always the type of person just to hit people up. Like I don't care if someone says fuck off or no, mm-hmm. because I've already got that. So yeah. it was like <laughs> I'll keep asking. I don't care. So I reached out to. Javier Laval of Android Home through Facebook. And I was just like, hey, I want to learn design because I was so inspired by this design because and this was still during the time where I was like trying to figure out how to make custom shoes, going into shoe repair, then like being more inspired by the design and like just even that's even more unique is if you have your own design. Yeah. And then he had me make a pair of shoes for Will I Am at the VMAs. And then he introduced me to Justin Bieber stylist. And then I started making shoes for them. And I'm negotiating all my deals as an artist that used to give away stuff. And then I was like, okay, now I'm making some money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. So it was pretty cool. And it's all, this is all happening. I'm making shoes for Justin Bieber. I have happened to put shoes at H. Lorenzo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Law & Order hit me up. Um, so I, mean, I made like $15,000 in a month. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is amazing. And I spent it and before the month was over, you know, so I'm on more shoes. No, I, what did we, <laughs> I was part, I was partying at the time. So partying food, yeah. probably more shoes. Uh-huh. Just um, dumb shit. Yeah. Dumb shit. <laughs> yeah. And you think that like for me, I was always, uh, I don't know if the, what's the word eccentric, but I felt like unlimited like everything's unlimited mm-hmm. uh, at an at early age when I learned about control delete on a computer I used to have dreams that like that's what life was you could do something fucked up and then control delete and it'll be mm-hmm. okay yeah and to find out that's not the case <laughs> but I've always had that 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 idea that it's unlimited which is why my money went fast mm. you know so I had to make money spend it to and then be be broke and like not have any way to pay rent and then it was like a ups and downs of me being depressed like oh when am I gonna get the next job wow so you're like doing shoes for Bieber and for TV shows and high-end department stores but like you can't pay rent yeah fuck that's yeah is it better now (laughs) yeah of course okay so how did did I had to put myself through a lot of stress and bullshit to I look at it now and it's like, man, I wish I went to business school. Like, I, you know what I mean? I wish I like focused. I mean, that wasn't my path, but like understanding now, like my son, 
I'm going to have them understand more or at least try mm -hmm. to understand there's, I don't know, there's more proper ways to do things. Was there a point where like you did a sale or a transaction where you're like, this is crazy money now? Like, did you hit like another plateau of like income? Yeah, it was when I made the first Python Jordan 4. Mm -hmm. uh, I just started dating my wife, current wife. Started da dating a girlfriend at the time. And I made a... Smooth. <laughs> Real smooth. A Python Jordan 4. Yeah. Because I wanted to make it. No one asked me to make it. Mm -hmm. I had a friend that worked at Super at the time. She was doing... I don't remember her role. Marketing or something. And Joy Claire... I uh, made her a pair. I asked her, I said, hey, what's your favorite pair of shoes? She was like, oh, I love the Bread Jordan 4s. I just happened to have Black Python laying around, and I created it and gave it to her, put it on the internet. You know, that's when Instagram was going, and those went viral. <clears throat> other people saw it, and they were like, okay. There's other customizers similar to me at the time that were all like, you know, we were kind of all talking to each other. It was like a... Um, like we had our own Facebook group at the mm -hmm. time and we, everyone would talk to everyone. Yeah. And then it started becoming a business. Then people were like, all of a sudden it blew up. Python Jordan 4s. Python so like Jordans. People were DMing you to order them? Is that how the transaction yeah, was happening? Yeah, it was DMing. And PayPal, basically. Is yeah. That oh, I was, yeah, PayPal. Yeah. PayPal. I still have a PayPal card. <laughs> I love I love PayPal. Like for me, that's if it wasn't for PayPal, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here. I mean, was it very like hand hand to hand like that? Like, oh, I want a size ten. Okay, PayPal me the money, and then I'll make you a shoe. It was like that. Fifty percent. And at that time, I I charged five hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. And how long did it take for you to make a shoe? Uh, it took it took us. Uh, it took me. Fuck man, it took. Months sometimes. Months. Yeah. So people would have to pay their deposit and then, like, wait months for it. Yeah, that's that was my foot into business. Uh, you know, Justin Bieber would get them next day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was. I don't know if it was because it was Justin Bieber or they needed it next day. You right. know what I mean? They had to show the next day. I see. Yeah, it was more urgent. But then, out of nowhere, we got hit with like. I mean, order, 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 order of Python Jordans. Wow. And so did other customizers. So it wasn't just me. Okay. It was like it was like a group of different customizers. It became a, then that's what started and became an industry of custom Python Jordans. Um, and then it since you know turned into other shoes and that and that. But mm -hmm. Yeah, this that was the early. But how many people could actually do it well? See, the, and it was still, no one was doing it good enough. Not even myself, not even anyone else. People could make it look good in a photo. Yeah. Right? Instagram. And it was like, then it became like competition to how to make a better shoot or a better product. Mm -hmm. And then my, my focus, because I hated it. I hated making custom Jordans. I wasn't, I didn't feel strongly about that. To put material on a Jordan and to sell it or whatever it was. But my focus changed from taking someone's money and giving them a product to really exchanging energy and me focusing, taking a step back from like making a Python Jordan, but focusing on making a higher end, higher quality product. Mm -hmm. So then it was, 
how do I really get into how to make a sneaker the proper way? Mm-hmm. So it was in essence you were doing business, but it was like honing your craft at the same time. Yeah, and I wouldn't recommend that for anyone. Many lessons learned here. Dominic learns by doing things the hard way. That's obvious. He talks about passing lessons down to his son, but maybe if he did it the proper way, it wouldn't have turned out the same. In fact, I can almost guarantee it wouldn't have. So these lessons, take them or don't. What I've noticed is that it's less about doing things the right way and it's more about doing it. Period. Dominic can now look back and have a clearer understanding of how he would have taken a more textbook approach. It's admirable, and he's now teaching the next generation how to do it better and smarter. And I love that he said no one was doing it good enough. Dominic's driving focus is to better the craft and the reputation for the entire industry, not just himself. So that's why I teach where I want to teach someone the right way the first time so that they can hone their craft and they can be better and further along than I ever was. The goal is to really push and further the craft for, you know, the same feeling I get. If someone's inspired to want to make a sneaker, then I don't mind, you know, giving them the proper tools. My only advice is learn the craft first, then sell the product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, I've, made, I've probably pissed a lot of people off. Mm. And I had to learn the hard way on my own. Are you happy now with your product? You like the one theme is you keep saying I wasn't happy with what I was making. Are you satisfied now? You're making great product. It's still not good enough. <laughs> no. I have a feeling you're going to say that like for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. I, I most likely will, especially once I start getting into designing my own stuff or even wearing my stuff. It's like I'm the type of person that I just dislike everything. Mm-hmm. You always find the flaws and things. Yeah, flaws. If I make it for myself, I don't want to wear it. Or, you know, at one point in my life, I was wearing Vans uh, Low Pro Authentics, all white. And then I would beat them to the ground so they looked so gross. And then I'd go to like, I'd go out and people are like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I make shoes. And they'd look at my shoes and be like, no. <laughs> so I also had to get past that. And yeah. Just be like, okay, yeah, you can be the crazy artist or you can also become a business, you know. So it was, it was a struggle on being an artist and I only wanted to be an artist and I wanted to make one shoe and that was it mm-hmm. and be known for it. Are you now like willing to accept anybody's order? No, I mean, we can't even keep up. And now it's, I mean, the price is quite three times of what it ever was. How much is it to get, like, if someone wanted a Python Jordan 4 now? 2500 plus they provide the shoe. Okay. And it's still not enough to me, but... <laughs> well, at your, like, peak, how many shoes do you have, like, online? Uh, in line? Yeah. Uh, how many people are waiting for a shoe right now? Well, see, you? now it's at the point where I work with the biggest brands. I work with eBay. I work with... Uh, Adidas, I work with Jordan Brand. Mm-hmm. You know, I've actually did a collaboration with Jordan Brand. Um, but like actual made to orders, 100 pairs mm-hmm. at one time. And it's, it's a pretty big constant rotation, yeah. which, which is also why people see me, what I do in the past few years, and then they want to get into it because they see the money that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Or they all that's all they see is the dollar signs and cool factor. When for me, really, I mean, yeah, I dreamed about it, but it was really about like, find, you know, I always say 
or I was in search of a hidden craft because again we didn't have shoe making or sneaker making in the United States so mm -hmm. it was like you know I went to a shoe repair I tried to learn this this but it was still I had to just hone most of it on my own yeah when you say you're like um, working with Jordan and Adidas and stuff like in what capacity like are they sending you shoes to use as canvases basically and the the Jordan collab was was pretty big for me they yeah they sent me a ton of pairs I went to their campus in Chicago I taught a workshop class for them mm -hmm. for the Jordan 13 and I produced 23 pairs mm -hmm. of the Jordan 13s that were uh, auction off they were uh, raffled off yeah. when they when someone bought like the regular shoe. Mm -hmm. I see. I mean, then we do it. What I've built with this brand, or I, I wouldn't even call it a brand, and it's like an agency now. Because mm. that's crazy, because it was the Jordan that got you into this back in school. Yeah. And now the brand is calling you and flying you out to Chicago to do these things. That's why I felt so impe impelled. Compelled. <laughs> English was my strongest subject, actually. <laughs> math, math was the worst. Um, compelled to to work with them was because it's it's a true story of yeah. how I got into it. Um, you know, it was a love hate for me for a while because I hated Nike. I was young. I thought you know they're they're so they're doing so much stuff. It's I hated them. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't know why I hated them. And then finally, like the more I just learned about, I guess becoming an adult, it was just like. It's a fucking amazing brand. What they did, and this is eight years back, like what they d did and are doing mm -hmm. is not, it's unheard of. Yeah. Absolutely. So I respected it and I was like, and then that's when I got into like, okay, how do I recraft the shoe to, to also provide a product that they enjoy? Yeah. You know what I mean? They see it and they're like, okay, they, he, this guy really cares about the product as well. Right. So talk yeah. about like, how does a Jordan just hit you up? Like, how does that first point of contact, how do you feel when you get that first, what was it, a phone call, email, DM, comment? What the hell was that? Jordan, I worked with other brands before Jordan, um, but Jordan brand came through building a relationship with a Jordan, with a, a guy at Jordan brand, and then Jordan brand seeing that I was, the shoe surgeon was friends with a Jordan employee, and then they they hit him up. They're like, hey, can you put us in touch with the shoe surgeon? And my friend was like, well, I don't know if he wants me to, you know? Mm -hmm. And he hit me up. He's like, yo, uh, marketing wants to talk to you. I was like, uh, sure. And I was already, you know, fairly busy at the time. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't keep up anyway. And it was a long, it was a long process because they were going through a lot of... Uh, Hi, uh, firing they're going through people so the first conversation with someone was um, I'm, I wonder if I'm allowed to talk about this I don't I think I am um, we'll see <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first conversation was with someone and then it that guy got let go or I don't even know what happened to him and then I had to start a new conversation mm -hmm. with someone else and it was like we had all of these our bullet points in this and then it completely changed the next guy like we missed a lot of points that we were talking to the other guy with so things got yeah lost budgets changed all these things mm -hmm. but you know just so that was that's how i got in contact through him was through a friend through through email well text and then email but even before that i was working with like adidas adidas was at a point in their time where they needed to you know 
do something. Mm-hmm. And then they started working more with <clears throat> customizers, um, artists. Yeah. You know, they had nothing to lose. So right. They, They're they, really embracing the culture. Yep. Yeah. And I was, you know, working, what did I do? The first project with Adidas, I believe, was uh, soccer cleats. Mm-hmm. They had a event in Santa Monica, and I made custom sneakers at their event, or custom cleats at their event for some of their top players, Pogba, Hamez, uh, what's the other guy's name? some top top players and you know I was hired by Adidas to do it yeah which I mean it was cool yeah I mean it wasn't the, the most money but it was it was cool to be associated and like be recognized right you know well, talking about the money because like they're not now paying you just to do the shoe as like a customer would right you mentioned you're sort of more like an agency now so like they're paying you like an agency fee yeah, it depends on how the project works, mm-hmm. but like you know, there's so many. It's it's crazy the different, the business that I started, and then the the businesses that start coming up from the school, like working with these brands for the school as well. Yeah, um, to cutting apart a shoe perfectly for one of the brands because. You know, it's easier for them to send it to me to take apart than to try to get their factory to do it. Right. Um, Interesting. So yes. there's all these different aspects that stemmed off of your core business. Yeah, and market them because of Instagram, the marketing and like the influencer bullshit. But it's like that's because of Instagram. And it's yeah. Like to to I guess to be a part of the culture. When you when you get into like the weeds of like a contract with a big company, do you have like a business manager now? Like that's doing that for you or you're sort of still handling it all uh recently i just brought on some help more for like business advice but before it was all me and it's like i never i never give myself credit because i i always said i hated business Mm -hmm. and i was more about the art and i wanted to do the craft but I don't give myself enough credit for the business that I built mm-hmm. and understanding that I've been, I've, I've made, I wore many hats from yeah. emails, customer service to payroll on my own, like, uh, like everything. <laughs> and then recently, finally, like finding someone that can help me get more organized, which is literally the first of this year. Mm-hmm. It's just that he can help me with my vision literally just started you mean like three days ago yeah yeah, three days ago (laughs) so i did everything by myself you know with the help of my wife and friends doing things how big Uh, is the team right now a dozen people wow but last year half that Mm -hmm. and and primarily all like making shoes no oh i mean i have a recently full-time designer full-time video photo i guess you'd say marketing um, I have a small team of different shoemakers. Uh, my sister-in-law was my is like more of a general manager who recently has been away because uh, my brother was in an accident. Um, so yeah, diff- it's like it's like a company, mm-hmm. like a small startup company. Yeah, that's dope. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I just I I never. I remember 
years ago just thinking, oh, I'm going to make a billion dollars doing this. I didn't know how. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had my bullshit business plan that I needed a lot of work. Now, by the way, when I wrote that business plan, I happened to run into Guy Fieri at the time, who was back from my, who lived in my hometown, and he just started becoming uh, who he was at the time. And I ran into him, and he was willing to let. He he said it. I ran into him, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm learning more about business. Would you look over my business plan?" I emailed it to him. This is random. I emailed it to him, and he was like, "Oh, that's really good, except for the numbers, of course." He was Guy a, Fieri, the yeah. host of. Diners, drive-in, and dive. Yep. We're from the same city. And you knew him from back in the day or no? I didn't know him. But you just went up to him as a stranger. My 21st birthday, <laughs> uh, th this girl brought me to a bar, and he just happened to be there. And he was like, when he was really just started as a celebrity, he won that sh the show he won. And he was like the first celebrity that came out of our the, the hometown. And, you know, I went up to him, and I was like, Hey, uh, you know, I want to learn, you know, I want to learn more about the business side, too. And he was willing to like, hey, he was open and he was like, hey, send email me the your thing, what you have. And I emailed to him and he was I mean, I probably still have that email. That's and so sick. So many people talk bad about so many different people. But from me, I've had so many good experiences with different people in the not even my industry, just celebrity type people or industry people. I yes. Guess. Yeah. From slicing up shoes at a cobbler, to outfitting celebrities, to forming a school, to having a team of a dozen people working on his vision, Dominic has definitely come a long way. But nothing in life is guaranteed. So many of the things that happen fall so far outside of the original plan. I mean, case in point, how does Guy Fieri end up in an episode? So have a goal, but have the flexibility to roll with the highs and the lows that life will inevitably give you. Is there anyone that has contacted you to to do work for them and you're just like shell-shocked? Any notables that you're like, wow, I can't believe so-and-so called? I got a job offer for Yeezy. Um, no uh, big deal, just got a job no, offer for I Yeezy. Mean, they wanted me to work for them and I've, I've, been, I've had a lot of job offers with Adidas and it's just doesn't make sense to shut down what I'm doing. Mm. And this is, I even got job offers to... We've been in LA two and a half years, so two and a half years ago. Um, but other really notables to work with, I mean, I'm sure there is. I really need to think about it. But at the time, it's like, yeah, but then it's like, no, it's not good enough. Yeah, I mean, like, I think a lot of people listening to this would give up their mother to get a job at Yeezy. Or Nike. Um, yeah. But Yeezy for sure. And yeah. If, How do you say no to that? Easy? Um, easy to say no? Easy to say no to easy. <laughs> it was? It was pretty much like a quick, like, nah. I was like, send me an offer. Okay. Um, before easy, it was some Adidas offer for, mm -hmm. the, for the Brooklyn farm. Mm -hmm. um, and they sent me an offer. It was decent. You couldn't live in New York. I mean, you know. <laughs> like, the amount was definitely not... We would not have been living comfortably in New York. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure I could have counter-offered, but I was like, no. Mm. So then the Yeezy, because Yeezy's now in Calabasas, or actually they're moving to L.A., L.A., mm -hmm. and they offered the job. They're like, you know, we want you to work. And I'm just like, I told them straight up how I felt, because it's the same people keep contacting me. I'm like, 
I can't just shut what, down what I'm doing. And they're like, oh, no, no, you can work part-time. Adidas is about, like, you know, doing your thing. And then the next conversation is, okay, well, uh, how many hours would it be? They're like, well, you would have to really think about what you're doing elsewhere. I'm like, I've already, I put so much blood, sweat, and tears into this and money and uh, messing things up that I can't take anything. Like, I joke around that if they, if someone in the company offered me a million dollars a year, you know, salary, I, I wouldn't take it. Mm. Not to say that you're making a million, or are you? Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that. You own the company. Of course you are. Yeah, but... <laughs> anyway, it's close enough that it's not worth it. it, it no, it wasn't... It, I mean, <laughs> maybe it's not the dollar amount. I could never really have yeah. a job for someone. It, right. was, it was... I needed to create something on my own, and I can't work for someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. I guess it's that. Even if it's Kanye. Well, especially if it's him. <laughs> uh, friends designed for him, and they. Uh, I've heard all types of stories, but I don't care about the stories because I don't care who it is. Mm-hmm. I can't work for you. Mm-hmm. You have your own thing. You have your own baby. Yeah. You ever weigh the pros and the cons of like, damn, stability and 401k and health insurance? And- yeah, recently, uh, well, I struck. I moved to LA two and a half years ago. Struggled for. One and a half years, struggled, like, fucking not sleeping for two nights straight to finish orders and kind of things to, like, be able to pay rent. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, you know, my wife got was pregnant, and I was like, fuck, man, I really, I want the stability. And, um... Wow, your I wife, thought, well, I thought your wife was pregnant, you're struggling to pay rent, and you're, like, sewing up shoes all night long. And she, she was actually helping me, too. That was in the last year? This was two years ago. Damn. This is two years ago. Okay. Uh, and you're getting job offers. Yeah, I'm getting job offers. So that's <laughs> that, that finally I got the, that first first Adidas job offer from Brooklyn. Which and, is crazy because, yo, like the Adidas Brooklyn Farm, for those yeah. who don't know, when they put out like we're hiring, like I know Mark Dolce, he was like, I got like 30,000 email applications and they offered you a job. Yeah. And you're like, I'm good with my pregnant wife not sleeping, not <laughs> yeah, paying rent. I'm good. <laughs> maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's because of the, the childhood I, I, I lived is never following the, the proper directions. Mm. I don't like someone telling me what to do. I've learned since being younger that, yeah, you, you, there are things that you have to follow. But at least it's on your own terms. Yeah, at yeah. least it's on my own terms. I mean, but again, back to the stability, like I, I just, between me and my wife, like we knew it was going to prevail and mm. get through and it did. Like just in a year, like in two years. It, yeah, two years. And the first of the year, like it's, it's finally, like it, I've went through so much like deep depression and I was diagnosed bipolar when I was younger. I, I went through so much shit and like downs, like, you mm-hmm. know, not making money for months. Like my wife was working a full-time job at Trader Joe's making $21 an hour, which was pretty good. 
um, while I was like had this dream and I was, you know, that's when I started doing the Python Jordans and she was working full time to support that because obviously we couldn't keep up and we weren't charging enough. It did, it wasn't really a business at the time where she would work six, five in the morning, come home at noon, help me from one to eight at night, whenever, whatever long it took to make shoes. Yeah. So, um, and then she got pregnant and we're like, Hey, we're going to, you know, luckily I actually was friends with someone in LA. He's like, you really got to move to LA. Like this is, you have to do this. And we, uh, hacked everything up and moved and struggled for one and a half years. I mean, it's, it still was struggling because I was trying to figure out how to maintain the business, create a perfect product do everything on my own. Um, so it was still a struggle. I mean, there was money coming in, but it was still like struggling to be, I was always stressed. Yeah. And then finally, like recently, I'm like, I'm in a good place where it's been, I guess you can say 15, well, 31, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Finally, I'm like, I feel like I can wake up and not have like that stress on my shoulder just because it's like I find I mean I guess if people say did you make it and finally I'm like yeah I made it to a point where now I know how much more I need to do to get to the next level was there one singular moment where it was like I mean you talk about the dates as though like one and a half years like it was almost like six months ago something happened yeah what happened it's just I guess it was one thing after another moving to LA was big uh, I was doing a lot of the misplaced checks with Geiger, um, and but then at the at the same time there was a lot of uh, influx of people wanting to buy a custom sneaker, mm-hmm. you know. So it's a gradual thing that just culminated basically about six yep. months ago. Mm-hmm. And Brooklyn was a year and a half ago. I don't remember. Sounds right. About maybe two, maybe two years ago. Yeah. So I mean, even then it was it was it was struggling, and then working with the brands, and then it was like, okay, now you're being this is you know being more legitimized, I guess you would say. Yeah. Because the brands wanted to work. Um, but finally, finding just the stability. To work on my own terms yeah so so next is your own shoe brand yeah i've been working on my own line um as the same time as working on custom stuff but at the same time teaching classes like everything that i've built within the shoe surgeon name is like could be its own business mm. full-time business yeah separately right S- separately so i'm we're still running those all by ourselves so we're slowly getting to the point where we can build a proper team to take on all of these things but the big focus and the big the most rewarding thing is really going to be launching the original line mm-hmm. what is that plan to launch uh the plan is september but it honestly the way i work is when the time is right we're going to develop our own outsole which you know takes time and also looking at a new space where it's going to be really about the experience rather than just the product Mm. so everything will be housed under there like classes your own line 
people can cust- you know, walk in and get customization done? Yeah, it's still going to be by appointment only. Okay. I don't like having... I like... I mean... I'm like the type of person that always changes his mind. When I was a young kid, my mom would buy me shoes at like a Marshalls, and then the next day I'd be like, "Hey, can we take these back?" So it's 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 a constant um, evolution or like change. Mm-hmm. So I I like the exclusivity, and I like having a place that's just quiet and more by appointment only. But at the same time, I definitely want to get into where someone you know when I was a kid I couldn't afford that, so I want to give kid the opportunity to come in and like have you know be able to like customize their shoe in a, in a in a store Word. so and i'm trying to welcoming but at the same time exclusive so you got well that's what you got to do yeah the best of both words worlds and figure out how to do both which have a decent grasp on it um and that's why we're looking for a new space yeah dope all right so big moves for 18 yeah well 2018 will be the next step and then 2019 it would be crazy. Did you bring in partners yet? No. No partners. It's more uh, like business advisors. Mm-hmm. But you still own the whole thing? Yeah. Okay. Have you thought about bringing in partners before? No. You know, sorry, you're right. I did bring in a partner. <laughs> okay. You met my partner at the time uh, who was a friend from uh, my small town. And it was a sweat equity partner. Um, and he went to business school. You know, because me, I was just like... I was, I had a business already that I didn't understand. I mean, I didn't real, I didn't, I was always this type like, oh, like I focus, I want to focus on the art and craft and I need more help with the business side because I didn't ever give myself credit. So then I was like looking for someone with more of a business mind, as I say, and a friend of mine went to business school. So I was like, okay, this guy knows business. Mm-hmm. But little do you know, it's a different business. Like, there's different types of businesses. Yeah. Just because you went to business school doesn't mean you know business. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that didn't pan out. That didn't pan out, and I had to pay for it. But it was a big learning experience, and you literally had to buy him out of it. Yeah. Okay. But being able to afford to buy him out was like, damn, like that made me feel good. Like. <laughs> Most people would find that like as a mistake, but you're like, that was dope. I got to buy out this yeah. guy I didn't want to be partners with anymore. Yeah, that's how my wife feels is a mistake. <laughs> but no, I felt good about it. Like if I could afford to buy him out and then yeah, live comfortably still, it's like, damn. Because it could have, I mean, sometimes it goes the other way where like, I've, I know entrepreneurs that have lost their business to a partner. Yeah. Yeah. Like got their brand stolen from them. literally. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. That's things you always have to be careful of for me i'll i would never lose i never lose because i won't ever give up whether it's like someone steal my brand i am the shoe surgeon mm-hmm. you know yeah i'll find my way back all right dope. <clears throat> all right i think that's good hey thanks for listening to the final episode of our first season you can find out more about the show or listen to past episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio Subscribe to us wherever you listen. I personally use Overcast. And you can reach out to me on Twitter, at Jeff Staple. Check us out on the web at businessofhype.com and email us any questions to questions at businessofhype.com. The Business of Hype is directed by Daniel Nevetta. It's edited and produced by Bright Young Things. You can check them out at byt.nyc. Engineering is by Andre Zakow. Our intern is Carolyn Cow. This was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio and on location in Los Angeles, California. 
I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hype Beast Radio. Sweet. It's a wrap.